All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, y'all. Introducing Dan Steinbach. He is an internationally recognized strategist of the multipolar world and the founder of Difference Group. He has served at the India, China, and America Institute, USA, Shanghai Institutes for International Studies in China, and the EU Center in Singapore, uh, differencegroup.net, which is all very interesting and intriguing. I've never heard of any of these things, and yet I read this wonderful piece at worldfinancialreview.com. You guys are all going to want to take a look at this. The Center of International Insecurity. Welcome to the show, Dan. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, thank you. All right. Well, really appreciate you joining us. So uh, the subhead here is the Biden administration, CNAS, and West Exec, Revolving Doors, Collusion, and Big Defense. Now, of course, longtime listeners to this show know that CNAS is the Center for a New American Security. That was essentially the Democrats' answer to the project for a new American century in the lead-up to the Barack Obama administration, led by John Nagle and Michelle Flournoy and their cronies. And their first major project, of course, was pushing for the massive counterinsurgency escalation in Afghanistan, which they got and lost anyway. And Flournoy was actually Deputy Secretary of Defense for Policy overseeing that failure. Don't ever forget that. But So that's the background, but they haven't gone away. And the very same characters have this group called West Exec, which we've covered on the show in the past a little bit as well. But I'll let you go ahead and tell the story, Dan, of the background of West Exec and what that has to do with the Biden administration and their foreign policy today. Uh, okay. The, I think that for me, the, this is almost like a paradox. There are certain things that happen at the same time. The dots have been identified and verified, but they haven't been fully connected. You have a very difficult economic situation in the U.S. You have global macroeconomic conditions that are deteriorating. Um, and uh, you, there was this situation four years after Trump for the Biden administration to have a historical opportunity to reset American trade policy and geopolitics. And none of these things happened. So it seemed to me that the key institutional role in this effort did belong to the think tank uh, Center for National Security, or CNAS. It's alumni and their corporate proxies and the world's largest defense contract, uh, contractors that are also just happy to be their donors. Uh, the best exec and how it figures in all of this is uh, in the following manner. Uh, CNAS is a think tank. West exec is an advisory, presumably, although it seems to function as a lobbyist. This is a, a long-lasting debate that has taken place in D.C., which one it actually is. Um, but having served as Obama's Undersecretary of Defense and military expert, Florida, I would believe, 
wanted to make money the old-fashioned way. So she essentially ended up exploiting the revolving doors between her advisory and the government. Uh, she had already been able to capitalize this on her own without the West Exec when she was advising for it as a Boston Consulting Group, BCG, uh, one of the big global management consultancies. In around 2013 to 16, if I recall right, the defense contracts of the BCG went up from $1.6 million to $36 to $32 million. Uh, and this has a lot to do with uh, Michel Flournay's uh, advice. Actually, the West Exec's original co-founders were two relatively unknown ex-Obama officials, Sergio Aguirre and Nidhi Chada. Uh, they came up with the idea, but they knew that their names wouldn't be strong enough to carry it. They didn't mark their names. Hence, they went after to recruit Florney and Anthony Blinken, Biden's Secretary of State. Uh, now, today, Chada himself is best exec point man in a so-called strategic partnership with Ridgeline, which is a venture capital and a special situation fund focusing on military startups. Uh, Aguirre, for, for his part, used to work for PHRMA as an associate VP for international advocacy. This organization is notorious for lobbying intensely against Medicare. Uh, they had been lobbying to prevent price limits for drugs, uh, given drug money donations to uh, ultra hawk hawkish advocacies working against Obama health care, which seems very strange taking into consideration the democratic objectives in this in this area. So after Biden's electoral triumph around 2016, Florida was seen as a very strong candidate for the uh, role of Secretary of Defense. The problem was, as you mentioned earlier in the beginning in your intro, Florida was also the person who had been ramping up the Afghanistan war. And uh, this is, didn't really rhyme with Biden's objective, one of which was to phase out US presence in the, from Afghanistan. Uh, as a result, she had to sort of stay outside. What bothers one when you look at the history of West Exec and when you look at its role in general is that uh, the, the amount of rhetoric and the kind of rhetoric that's being practiced in order to make, to justify things that perhaps shouldn't be justified. Just one example, Florian made this famous distinction between offensive defense and defensive weapons arguing that Saudi Arabia needed Patriot, Patriot missiles to protect itself in the Yemeni civil war. And uh, sure enough, for instance, 2019, Raytheon Technology is one of the major global contractors and a major donor behind West Exec had sold Saudi Arabia over $3 million worth of bombs, the defense contractor that was a major West Exec contributor. And the other donors behind CNAs really include the big league of the big defense, maybe Northrop Grumman, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, that was already mentioned, but also energy giants, Chevron and Exxon, and Soros' open society foundations that seem to be very much uh, active with in, in a lot of areas where you've had regime change or efforts at destabilization, at least from the point of view of the target countries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know what? It sure does sound like they're putting the cart before the horse here. I wonder, um, 
if you could convince any of these people that their interests are different than the national interest? <laughs> I think that is really the problem here because uh, uh, if you look at the way that these uh, organizations operate, for instance, when there when there's lack of diplomacy, international diplomacy, the results can be very detrimental. And what we've seen now is a big change with the post 9-11 wars as opposed to those that preceded them. In the past, uh, it was, uh, uh, these wars were financed mainly by bond campaigns and they were targeting low to middle income populations and direct taxes. So you really feel the pain of the war. Uh, you can debate whether those wars were necessary or not, but they didn't result in the kind of a great social inequality that we see today. And the wars that we've seen in the past 20 years uh, have uh, mainly relied on borrowing, domestic borrowing, and to a degree, even foreign countries that are investing in America are participating in this uh, indirectly. When I started writing this piece, one thing that uh, shook me was the NBC's Meet the Press um, some weeks ago. They aired a segment which imagined a conflict over Taiwan in 2027. It was a war game simulation. It was run by CNAS, and it imagined a situation in which U.S. signed tensions burst into an open war over Taiwan. I was curious about the number 2027. There are a lot of stories about the US and China relations and American concerns of what is called assertive China, term that did not really originate from China either. But where did this 2027 come from? Who was the Chinese politician that talked about it? Or was it based on classified information, somehow uh, relying on, on sources that that had verified this kind of error. I found nothing. And the reality is that there really was nothing as a basis. Even CNAS was using the public testimony of, that I think originated from March 2021 by ex-commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Philip Davidson, who is an old Cold War warrior. And after his retirement joined uh, a uh, Japanese organization operating in the U.S., uh, that was originally founded by an alleged war criminal. So there was no direct link with uh, China in case of this number 2027 and imagine war. It is this ease that one uses to talk about events that cause so much uh, devastation in other countries that captured my attention. Not to speak about the Yemen war or the Yemeni civil war, where perhaps 400,000 people have died because of the bombings, but also because of famine and and uh, all kinds of ailments and disease that comes with war. So it was this sort of things that I was trying to sort of unravel or, or uh, dissect with my piece. Yeah, well, um, you know, actually, the reason I was a minute late for our interview is I was just wrapping up one about Yemen myself here. And, you know, I like to refer people to this piece in the New York Times where, and this was not really a scoop. I know their reporting about Donald Trump could be unreliable, but 
I'm almost certain they talked to Pete Navarro, the trade, uh, you know, representative or the trade uh, czar or whatever in the Trump government. And they talked about how, or, you know, they had good sourcing on it. People can check it out. They talked about how, you know, industry was mad at Trump because his tariffs on China had really disrupted a lot of American industry. And so Navarro wanted to make it up to them by boosting the military industrial complex, because that's where the federal government can just shovel money directly into those types of firms, broadly defined. But of course, arms manufacturing is not all manufacturing in America. But I guess to the Trump people, this is how to make manufacturers happy. And then even when the uh, House and the Senate passed the War Powers Resolution in 2019, it was Raytheon, the missile maker, that lobbied hard for uh, with Pete Navarro to get Trump to veto that resolution, which is exactly what he did. And according to the Times, Raytheon's influence was the single most important part of that decision. I sure wouldn't doubt it, the way that it played out at that time. Uh, these events that you, you mentioned are, are important and critical. I remember the name Navarro first time. I, I, I discovered it already maybe 10 years ago. There were all kinds of uh, pieces that he was writing. He clearly was very ambitious. He wanted to be part of the 2012 uh, electoral campaigns and then 2016, obviously. But these connections, particularly with the what is known as the military-industrial complex, even in the case of the Biden administration, one remembers the Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore, which is an annual event, presumably to look at the world's strategic affairs, but oftentimes looks like marketing for the biggest defense contractors or the big defense. There was a, a comment by the General Dynamics CEO. Novakovic, where she said, or was sort of apprehensive of the fact that, uh, you know, we we're making most of our money, the big defense money in the Middle East. Even today, perhaps 47, 50% uh, is, is, uh, uh, goes to the Middle East, but not in Asia. How can this be? Because Asia is the most dynamic world region. And he, she acknowledged that it's the growing market for US defense contractors. But she felt that the big defense could do better in this region, just as it had done in the Middle East. The problem was, to quote him, was to win over unsophisticated buying authorities. So she was advocating upgrades to fight together should the need arise. But this was not a passive event. It was stimulated, that event, and it has been stimulated. Uh, and the CNAS has played a great role in it, uh, not just through its own activities and its donors, but through its strategic partnerships and uh, uh, lately through its ventures into venture capital and military startups. These are taking these sort of activities to an entirely different level that should be alarming to anybody who, who is looking into these matters. Right. Now, I'm glad that you mentioned in here that Flournoy did not get the job as Secretary of Defense. And I think it's funny 
that she could have had the job under Obama, and she made it known that she did not want the job under Obama. She was going to wait for Hillary and come in and be with the team of ladies doing their thing, breaking the glass ceiling and whatever. So uh, due to her arrogance, she lost her chance. And then here comes Joe Biden, and everybody said she's a lock. And uh, yet somehow, I think what it was was Biden was actually one of the least worst on the Afghan surge. And he did support some surge, but not what they did. And I think that he got real cross with Flournoy during that time in the fight in 2009, in the fight over whether to surge and how much and all those things. And so he held a grudge. One thing about that crotchety old fool that I appreciate is he doesn't like her. Me neither. Um, but, you know, she probably is next in line after Lloyd Austin. You know what I mean? There's not too many people in the, the way that they play the game there. It seems like she's more likely than not to be next anyway if he stays in office. Correct. And it ultimately doesn't really matter. I mean, in the sense that uh, CNAS, uh, West Exec, are all involved in this. And you have also other players that come through, you know, friendships, partnerships, and so on and so forth, in the sense that if you look particularly what's going on in Asia, the key person in all of this has been Kurt Campbell, the Asian czar of, of Biden, a person who was already creating this notion of the people to Asia under the Obama administration, mm -hmm. and who now serves as coordinator of the Indo-Pacific Affairs or in the, on the National Security Council. Um, he was the one who introduced this idea in 2019 of an intense competition without catastrophe vis-a-vis -vis China, which would allow America to both challenge and coexist with China. My fear as somebody who has followed these matters more than two decades is that uh, this is not competition. This is something very different. It's taking the region that has been most dynamic, dynamic in the world uh, the past few decades to an edge in so many ways, whether we talk about nuclearization through AU, KUS, or whether we talk about the diversion of funds that should be for economic development into rearmament drives in, in this critical region. And, and yet the impression that's created is that this is uh, a way to ensure American economic presence in the area. It's a way to ensure the economic presence of the defense contractors in the area, but not really uh, something where uh, the new jobs, the new capital, et cetera, would, would be uh, prominent. We see some efforts to that direction, and there's nothing bad about that. But when it happens so much with these ideas of uh, containment, as if China was the old Soviet Union, uh, the probability of a disaster comes far closer. And let's be real. I mean, even in this notion of Indo-Pacific containment that uh, that Campbell has been pushing up through not just the administration, but his own company, Asia Group, the idea has been to, a bit like the 50s, early 50s, to militarize containment, containment and minimize U.S. costs by diversifying risks to allies and property conflicts to Asia. So if you use the Ukraine example, it's a bit like uh, learning those lessons from Ukraine in the sense that the idea is to fight to the last Asian in the region. 
And this is based on these revolving door practices that still uh, prevail and that makes possible uh, the militarization. And let's be honest about something else. This has very little to do with George Kennan and the original containment uh, doctrine. He did create it and he did push and promote it initially. But by 1948, he took distance. It was his fear precisely that uh, what he called containment will be distorted and militarized. And uh, as he said later to CNN, I think in mid-90s, this would lead to 40 years of unnecessary, fearfully expensive and disoriented process that we call the Cold War. And there's still something else that I, I would be concerned about. This whole notion of the pivot uh, doctrine that so much relies on security policies, militarization of foreign policy and so on and so forth. I'm sorry, sir, the what doctrine did you say? Uh, the pivot to Asia oh, uh -huh. by Kurt Campbell, this doctrine. Um, it actually seems to emulate a, a, a different doctrine that was created about a century ago uh, called the geographic uh, or geographical pivot of history. That one was authored by Halford Mackinder, mm -hmm. who was sort of an imperial apologist of British expansion of the British Empire. Uh, but he was also the uh, ideological uh, precursor or, or idol of Karl Haushofer, Hitler's mentor in military expansionism. Uh, Hitler himself wanted to expand in order to gain resources, and he had no concerns or fears about enslaving the Eastern European people. That was his objective even prior to the Holocaust. So uh, this kind of thinking of using military expansion as a way to endure, ensure economic primacy, when the preconditions for economic primacy are done, it's dangerous. And here's why, if I may, uh, think about the situation in 1945, after the Second World War, and today, 2022. If you look at the US economy, after 1945, there was perhaps uh, an emphasis, uh, a motivation to, to think in terms of American century. At least it was understandable, because the US economy accounted for half of the world economy. But today, it's about 20, 22%. It's fourth. It's important, but it's no longer has the primacy. Second, at the time, 1945, US was the world factory. It had the surplus of export, manufacturing exports. Everybody wanted to have them. Today, we have the deficit that keeps growing and US is the major importer. And because the exports remain too high relative to the imports, there's this net gap that has to be financed. And China has been one of those financiers until recently. That may change. Third, the leverage. 1945, U.S. was the one to, to give money out. U.S. was the major debtor. Uh, now it's the creditor. And at the time also, dollar had the ultimate supremacy. Today it remains critical. But the world economy, economy now is multipolar. But it's really governed by the victors of 1945 and the kind of ideas of American exceptionalism. There are many ways to read American exceptionalism, but the kind of ideas that emphasize the role of the military. And that, I think, is very, very dangerous. Give me just a minute here. Listen, I don't know about you guys, but part of running the Libertarian Institute is sending out tons of books and other things to our donors. 
And who wants to stand in line all day at the post office? But stamps.com? Sorry, but their website is a total disaster. I couldn't spend another minute on it. But I don't have to either, because there's easyship.com. Easyship.com is like stamps.com, but their website isn't terrible. Go to scotthorton.org slash easyship. Hey, y'all, Scott here. You know, the Libertarian Institute has published a few great books. Mine, Fool's Errand, Enough Already, and The Great Ron Paul. Two by our executive editor, Sheldon Richman, Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. And of course, No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, our late great co-founder and managing editor at the Institute. Coming very soon in the new year will be the excellent Voluntarist Handbook, edited by Keith Knight a new collection of my interviews about nuclear weapons, one more collection of essays by Will Grigg, and two new books about Syria by the great William Van Wagenen and Brad Hoff and his co-author, Zachary Wingert. That's libertarianinstitute.org slash books. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, could you uh, talk for a little bit about uh, Antony Blinken, our current Secretary of State? I mean, everybody knows, I should have mentioned there when I was blabbing about um, the, about Lloyd Austin, of course, that he was a Raytheon executive in between his uh, stint as general in command of Central Command and as Secretary of Defense. But Antony Blinken likes to make money when he's not in office, too, right? Right. Uh, when people were needed to to have a facade for for this West exec, he was the key person uh, along with the Florian. And uh, uh, like Jake Sullivan, who operated in macro advisory partners, uh, a secretive firm uh, that was more based in England, had been run by former execs of MI6. Um, I think Blinken had his objective really to, to create a pension fund himself, for himself or something like that in the sense that he was now co-heading the West Executive Advisors prior to the uh, Biden administration. He had a reputation of somebody who had integrity uh, by, by his admirers, at least. But there have been a lot of allegations about his conflicts of interest, allegations that became more apparent uh, during his nomination. After 25 years in government jobs, he left for the private sector when Hillary Clinton lost to Trump in the 2016 election. Uh, now, West Exec, with its clientele in defense industry, private equity hedge funds, really has been money from heaven to him. Uh, recently, Forbes estimated that his wealth could be around $10 million. And when you look at where it comes from, First, he made his name through CNAS. It was sort of a marketing vehicle if you use business standards to look at the think tech. That span off the Westex uh, advisors. And uh, uh, as he started making money, he got a board seat in Soho Capital. Uh, that's an internet venture. 
His stake, I think, is about $250,000 in that one. It was created by a Sri Lankan, American, Canadian entrepreneur, Shama Palihapitiya, whose own personal worth is about $1.2 billion. And through social capital, um, that's an interesting venture of its own, although it's a small sort of penis for him. Uh, it is run by Mark Mezvinsky, uh, that is the husband of, of Chelsea Clinton, who used to be in charge of a Greek-focused fund called Evil Whale uh, about 10 years ago. That had uh, was managing maybe $330 million, 90%, which was very quickly lost. Uh, Blinken also has more than half a million dollars in equity, Berkshire Hathaway, Alphabet, Google, Facebook, Apple, and so on and so forth. So that makes you wonder a little bit how you reconcile this conflicting interest and whose interest really is being represented by the key actors of the Biden administration. Sullivan is no different, perhaps a blander character, but no different in terms of the substance. When he worked for MAP or the Macro Advisory Partners, um, he uh, he was also uh, serving as an intermediary uh, to companies that wanted to enter Iran. Now, in the Obama administration, Sullivan himself had been negotiating the nuclear deal, uh, JCPOA, with Iran. Mm -hmm. In his company, MAP, he used inside knowledge of what it can determine what's inside knowledge to help companies to exploit the expected opening of the Iranian economy, which Trump then shut. He also, which I think is even worse in terms of the democratic ideology, represented the rights there giant Uber, basically trying to figure out ways how they could work against the unions or, or labor. And um, controversially, MAP had a key role in playing with the uh, companies, but also state-owned entities, one of which is Taipei's uh, representative firm in the U.S., TCO. Now, we can show that the U.S. policy, there has been a shift in U.S. policy towards Taiwan and weapon shipments to Taiwan that started with the Trump administration. It has been talked about for quite a long prior to the Trump administration, but it was really made official with that administration. Those arms shipments have escalated in parallel with Taipei's big donations, meaning TECO, to firms and organizations in the U.S., which have been headed by White House heavyweights. So there is a question whether these kind of memberships, these kind of clients actually affect your foreign policy and would be foolish to conclude that they don't. All right. And uh, there's so much to go over in your great article, but we got to stop and uh, talk about John Brennan for a minute here, too, former head of counterterrorism in the White House and director of the Central Intelligence Agency. What's his role in this? John Brennan, the former director of the CIA, joined the best exec uh, relatively recently in April. Uh, there has been um, inflow of new players. Brennan is one of them. Others are connected to CIA, Homeland Security, and so on and so forth, particularly in the past few months. Perhaps the great role of CNAS as a sort of a center player is, is part of it. Perhaps, as you mentioned in the very beginning, uh, just like Republicans have their 
their their own project uh, for the new century. Democrats wanted to have theirs, and it's working. I think that part of it is also these strategic partnerships that have been created by West Exec with different players, and uh, uh, even the role of Eric Schmidt, the former head of Google, that has joined uh, West Exec efforts. Uh, I think that you, you can look at the role of Brennan in terms of his personality and what he will bring to West Exec. Their uh, role of CIA, the role of intelligence has been less prominent in the past, perhaps the role of foreign policy, the role of uh, uh, defense and the military has been very prominent. So they are diversifying, they are expanding, they're consolidating. That's the way I would see it. Uh, there's also another phenomenon, this link with uh, Eric Schmidt, the former head of Google, is very important because Google, uh, uh, having left Google, Schmidt, who is the billionaire executive and uh, has been the chairman of the Alphabet the umbrella behind Google, is also the financier of several democratic campaigns and another client of West Exec. Now, recently, he created uh, a fund called the American Frontier Fund, AFF. Uh, it will be headed by Gilman Louis, who is the former CEO of InQtel, and uh, Jordan Plaschek, who is the executive ex executive of Schmidt Futures. InQtel is a very important operator in this area, and I think that through Brennan, through AFF, through uh, Schmidt, the objective of the West Exec has been to come up with something that would clone the capabilities of InQtel in or through West Exec. Uh, founded by Louis and Lockheed Martin's CEO in 1999, InQtel has invested in high-tech companies, presumably to keep the CIA and other intelligence agencies close to the technology frontier. And it has been particularly uh, prominent in uh, ICT, information and communication technology. That's a field that I know fairly well because I, I used to focus on that in the past, writing uh, you know reports on Nokia, Ericsson, Motorola, and many other companies. Mm -hmm. And the objective is to use these companies to gain an edge. That edge is critical because unlike uh, some other countries, including China, but also some European countries in the past, US has not been a major equipment, equipment manufacturer in the ICT sector, these other countries have. So how do you control the fifth generation platform without manufacturing the equipment that makes the 5G? That's a problem. That's why I think that the government went after uh, Huawei and other Chinese companies that were very eager to invest in the US about a decade ago. That's why there were those notorious hearings around 2012 and that's why Chinese investment has collapsed. Um, and I think part of it is that unless you have people like Brennan, uh, organizations like InQtel or their contemporary forms close to the West Exec, you cannot weaponize ICT. And if your objective is not foreign policy as much as it is militarized foreign policy, you want to weaponize the ICT. Hmm. So tell me something. It's, it's pretty hard to see from here and judge I mean, you have this 
you know, very interesting chart, figure four, in your article here about InQtel and all the other investment groups that they are tied to. And then it's easy to imagine it's all just a front for the CIA. Whichever groups they're majorly involved in, they are the top dog in and suborn the interests of whatever else is going on there in favor of the national government and the intelligence so-called community's interests, right? But then, so I wonder... Like if I'm looking at the solar system and all of the warps in the gravity field from all the planets floating around there, is InQtel Jupiter in this thing? And they're dominant in high tech in Silicon Valley in so many ways, or they're one good slice of it. I don't know, a sixth or a tenth or some kind of thing, or how would you characterize it, sir? If you could help me see it in my mind's eye how important and influential this group and its other front groups are in terms of just overall the high-tech industry in America? Well, you know, that was the problem I had trying to figure out how this system works and how these networks operate. And I needed to try to imagine it using some kind of a flowchart, some kind of a universe model to make sense of it. I wouldn't characterize IQT or InQtel as a kind of a <clears throat> Jupiter necessarily. It's more like a sneaky Jupiter in the sense that it changes the character of basically civilian industries. In the past, right. um, this kind of operations like, you know, uh, CNAS or West Exec and so on and so forth, uh, they operated sort of in the edges of funds, in the edges of venture capital. Now they seem to want to be in the center. Think what it means. If you have monopolistic players that operate both in the government and in the private sector at the same time, they crowd out perhaps players that are more decent, more decent in the sense that they focus only on civilian industries. You can really also ask, what does it mean to consumer welfare? If the objective of these operations is ultimately uh, military supremacy, that's not the first thing that comes to mind to ordinary Americans that they look at their daily life, when they look at income polarization. Uh, these sort of matters are really critical to the military industrial complex in the US, and not just in the US, to other military industrial complexes everywhere. But they should be subject to civilian overview, not the other way around. The great fear of President Eisenhower seems to have come through in something of a nightmare here. So if you look at the, uh, the CIA, created in QTEL and you start from it, go to the American Frontier Fund, you end up with the best exec advisors, but at the same time you end up with a bunch of organizations that are not just their, you know, corporate alumni or corporators, partners, but are their strategic partners, so they have a more critical role. I took a look in those because I was curious how, how, how does this thing operate? And uh, you have part of the system, Pine Island Capital Partners, that's operation where also you had Lloyd Austin, the President Defense Secretary, <clears throat> uh, together with, uh, with uh, Blinken. You have venture capital firm, Ridgeline. You have a global management consulting, Boston Consulting Group, and you have a global PR advisory, Teneo. And it looks to me, when you look at these companies, they all bring something to West Exec it didn't have before. It didn't have private equity, hence Pine Island. It wasn't operating venture capital um, in funding new 
or operations, new companies, new startups. It wants to be in military startups. It wants to dominate security and so on and so forth. So Ridgeline, it was in the global management consulting. BCG is one of the biggest players in the area and global PR, Teneo. But by the same token, you actually take a lot of uh, liabilities through these companies. Uh, these strategic partners, of course, are profitable, but they're also controversial. In Angola, for instance, BSG operated or cooperated with Isabella Santos, who was notorious for exploiting natural resources. New York Times added more than one or two uh, disclosures on that one. In Saudi Arabia, it helped uh, the Prince Mohammed bin Salman to consolidate power. In Sweden, in the small Sweden, uh, it was particularly notorious and remains so because it was involved with the construction of the Lua Karolinska University Hospital. And there were a lot of illegal, uh, illegal activities associated with that. The same goes for Ridgeline. And Teneo is perhaps the most notorious of all in that he has engaged in illicit and questionable conduct, including even sexual harassment of by CEO who ultimately had to leave. I was stunned to find that Teneo, who plays a central role as a strategic partner, PR partner of West Exec, that they also provided services to oxycodone manufacturer Purdue Pharma, which is a key player behind the US opioid epidemic. Uh, so with friends like this, I think you really should think twice. And even if you look at the uh, West Exec's own clients who in one way or another are involved in these venture startups, which are now more and more going towards military and security objectives, uh, it should caution you a little bit that one of the key clients of West Exec was Winworld, an Israeli artificial intelligence venture which was launched by naval intelligence officers with the country's former chief of staff on the board. And other windward investors included CI director David Petraeus, who you've often talked about, uh, Florida's war comrade from the Afghanistan era. Right. And there was also the lead investor, Li Kaxing. Now, there's a joke in, that every Hong Konger knows that uh, even if you fart in Hong Kong, Lee Kashin will make money on that. <laughs> he's one of the biggest tycoons in Hong Kong through his VC fund, Horizons Ventures. And then if you're a Democrat, I, I really think, particularly if you're a progressive Democrat, you should have a problem with the fact that Pine Island is being led by John Thane. Now, he's the person who tanked Mary Lynch in 2008 while paying himself bonuses along the way. And a mud Amid the subprime debacle, he's the person, Thane, who spent $1.2 million to remodel his office, which included $35,000 for a gold-plated commode on legs. Now, later he apologized and reimbursed, but only because he got caught. So when you have friends like this, uh, it, it, you really start wondering how far this will go. Even if you look at the uh, rapid rise of Lloyd Austin, who had a honorable discharge and has a, almost like a rags riches story in the defense. You see even Biden family members being close to him at the time when he is being promoted and so on and so forth. Um, this is not to say anything about him or uh, his ecology or anybody else's. This is to say that when you have these kind of networks that in which each operator carries a lot of power, corporate, military and otherwise, 
people tend to promote each other. And is that good for the national interest? I don't think so. It creates more distortions and it tends to uh, actually uh, deepen the income polarization in the country. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, you heard the man. Get out there and get yourself a B-1 bomber. Uh, it's Dan Steinbach from differencegroup.net. And this one is at worldfinancialreview.com, the center of international insecurity. Thank you so much for your time on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Scott. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.